Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman. My guest today, I was just laughing. I've been chasing him around with microphones for, I'm trying to figure out, like 12 years or, or something. He's, he is a man in motion, and he is always uh, has a new project, has a new book, traveling somewhere, doing something for other people. Um, he's he's just one of the most interesting, not just people in food, but humans on the planet. And um, I have to say one of the best senses of style <laughs> that I probably definitely the best dressed person we've ever had on this podcast. Um, Marcus Samuelson. <laughs> How are you? I mean, that's not an undersell. We agreed on an undersell. I didn't give all the titles. If you want to undersell is the best way to be introduced because then you can leave and like really deliver well i here's the thing though i didn't mention all of your projects so red rooster jenny's eat up harlem a new uh project uh that is an audible single it, 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 it is not i wouldn't even say it's new it's i think what i love about the Red Rooster cookbook can now be realized through Audible, right? Yeah. So the, the 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 people that tell the story of our Harlem is the same amazing people that I've learned from for the last 15 years, yeah. right? That what is the sense of place? Who does, you know, who, who will, you know, who really knows Harlem to its core much, much better than me, and I've been lucky enough to present part of it. But we learn about, you know, entrepreneurship from Mr. Dapper Dan. We learn about style from Ms. Lana Turner. We learn about art and, and being in a neighborhood from Thelma Golden. Um, we learn about the Apollo through through um, some amazing people. So, so that really was what the cookbook is. But then to be able to tell that yeah. in a new medium, that makes me so happy because that... Harlem is a state of mind and a sense of place, and it touches our neighborhood. And all of us kind of have to, we need that. And I knew that I certainly needed that when I moved to Harlem, and that's why I feel so connected and happy that in new formats, in new technology, in new mediums, we can tell that story worldwide. Yeah, let's explain what this this Audible cookbook mm-hmm. is and how it can, what what the format of this is. Yeah. I mean, when I make a cookbook, right, a cookbook for me, it always takes four years to make, right? People to, don't really. They yeah. think, oh, I'm going to write some recipes. Yeah, I'm well, gonna... so, so for me, it's like, what's the narrative? Um, and what's the neighborhood look like? And I, I really think through what is the mu- music? What's the score going to look like? Mm-hmm. Right? What are the recipes to that? And, and and what delicious you know food can we cook around that, right? And how can we tell the story about the anonymous cook to the visible cooks and, and what stories are we trying to tell and that is really when you read the Red Rooster Cookbook that's what's in it right but sometimes it takes you know so where does a cookbook like that fit and belong right it's part cookbook it's part narrative so I do think when the beautiful people from Audible came around and say, hey we want to convert this into you're going to do some cooking. So I cook seven recipes. I cook a whole week, Monday, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Monday to and Sunday. And you talk through the recipes. Yes. And then I have bring into that kitchen some amazing storytellers like Jessica Harris. Oh, Dr. Jessica yeah, Harris. exactly. Oh. <laughs> and and, and uh, I cook with, you know, Dapper Dan. Or I, you, you hear stories because uh, that's what we felt would be the best way. And then, then we have music around that. So 
whether you're on your way to work or you're driving down one of those summer uh, drives, you can be part of Harlem and you can be inspired and maybe think about, okay, what part of Harlem can I bring to my neighborhood and what does that look like? And it, it t- touches about everything. It talks about cooking, talks about neighborhood and, and soul, you know. So the last time that I was saying I've been chasing you around because you're in motion, but we got to sit down a few years ago uh, when I was still at CNN and we hosted a supper. Um, we had the, the series of things called Secret Supper where yeah. we invited people to save the date. We didn't tell them where where, where they were going to be um, in, until uh, the, the day of and we would invite artists and farmers and activists and and chefs and have everybody sit around a big table and we would invite other chefs so it was you george mendez suvir saran eddie wong and uh and and don lemon from cnn was with us too and as an exercise we had everybody fill in a name tag mm-hmm. where they identified themselves not just by their name but how they sort of described themselves we asked people what is your cultural heritage and i said something on like ex like suburban born white chick recovering catholic uh, you know art school girl something like that and trying to figure out what my identifiers were for this and it was an interesting exercise for me to see how other people would would take it would they take race would they take place would they take religion what it was i don't remember what you put on your your name tag but what would your name tag say now i think uh, like most people, we are many, I'm many things, right? And I have some, you know, incredible experiences that maybe in one way have made it easier for me to hold on to those. Mm-hmm. You know, um, African, uh, adopted. And I think that's a big one. You know, yeah. I can be at an airport and someone wants to walk up with me with any, you know, and we start to talk about adoption because he was adopted or she, they just adopted, yeah. right? Um, definitely um, a Swede, um, uh, an immigrant, and a Harlemite, and the luxury of being a black man, you know, all of those. And then you add m- more than anything uh, a cook, you know, because without cooking, I wouldn't be here, and I, I don't know my adult life without cooking it's all one um and i've i've lucky enough to be able to escape into those different worlds yeah. you know and um cooking has been the thread through that you know obviously family and cooking has been the thread but all of those things um have made it easier for me to see other people right like i've been an immigrant so when i say immigrant people you know maybe think that's you know it's a, it's a, it's a joke or, or something like that, but I've been an immigrant. I've been an immigrant six times. Oh, I, what is your path? So, obviously, when you are adopted, you don't really immigrant, but you 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 are removed, and that sets you up for something being other and different. Absolutely. Right? When you you do that cross race, it definitely sets you up. Right. right? Um, then, at a very young age, I, I started cooking in in Japan and Switzerland and France, and. Uh, when you take language away, Kat, you start to develop other senses, right? You you smell the food, you look in someone's eyes, you have to connect through people's eyes, and you still got to deliver at a very high level. So the complexity of that, so you you're like you're, you can smell a situation right away, or you have to connect with someone's eyes, or you have to ask somebody for how, how to take the right subway to work, right? right, without speaking the same language. And then on top of that, blackness on top of that, right? Mm-hmm. 
So those adds very, very unique situations, and I've been fortunate enough to be in those situations mm-hmm. uh, and, and both go into them, but also come out of them with richer experiences. Yeah, I've seen you as a guidepost for a lot of people, but I also, I came across a treasure recently. Um, I'm not sure when this episode is going to air, but by this point, I assume um, Korsha Wilson, extraordinary writer, um, did an incredible profile of the sadly departed Patrick Clark, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a chef in... New York in the uh, 80s, 90s, 90s. really important uh, black chef Mm -hmm. who was he he was cooking. um, He was helming the kitchen at Odeon when he was 24. Cafe Luxembourg. Yeah, Yeah. like really important places and really making his his mark. And, you know, New York born Mm. um, person whose legacy has has really gotten lost in a a pretty shameful way. But but, but think about that also, because it was a young McNally driving yeah. force of Odeon, mm-hmm. right? So Odeon at that point, that's was a, an artist heaven, yeah. right? So very creative. So Basquiat, yeah. Andy, the creative. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in there was Patrick doing French sauces and things mm-hmm. like that. It's very, very ahead of his time. Right? Oh, he absolutely... Well, the thing is, like, he was so ahead of his time and he had sort of gotten lost in, in the conversation following it. But I found a book... Uh, while you know working with Korsha on this thing, and it was a tribute that mm. um, that had been done. It was it was uh, Charlie Trotter uh, yeah. who had done this book, getting together uh, all the culinary world, yeah. um, uh, paying homage to this this man who you know he at a very young age won or he he won a James Beard Award. He uh, just had all these incredible accomplishments, and people wanted to support his family because he he died. Um, in his, yeah, of a of a heart condition and left behind a family, a son who still cooks in New York. Yeah, Preston. Preston. I found a quote from you. Yeah. In there, sure. and I saw it, and, and like my whole body got goosebumps. And you were talking about the importance of of Patrick Clark and making you giving you a guidepost, making you feel like you had a place because he was somebody with dark skin who was mm. working in a kitchen. Can you? Talk a little bit about seeing somebody like Patrick Clark. Yeah, you, were, I mean, you were a baby. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Patrick was everything. I mean, Patrick was, um, I mean, I love Patrick, right? Because Patrick was, when when I came to New York, the the people that, that looked like me, there was Miss Leah Chase in New Orleans, oh, and it was Miss, Sel- Miss Sylvia's Woods, and um it was Miss Alberta Wright, which is an f- amazing lady that passed away a couple of years ago, and she owned Jezebel's. Uh, and then it was Mr. Patrick Clark, right? And Patrick uh, was a chef's chef, you know, who worked mm-hmm. at the White House with the Clintons. <laughs> he uh, studied in France, so his path I could relate to, you know, uh, in a very specific way, because I've been to France. And, um, you know, Patrick also was old school, you know, so Patrick, when he called me, I don't think he ever asked me anything. He said, Patrick, uh, I said, chef, it's Patrick. It's like, (laughs) come up, we got to do this. And like, he didn't even ask where I was, what I was doing, because, you know, there was before cell phones, so you were in your kitchen, of course, and he didn't care if we had something to do, you just went there. I was like, chef, I'll be there later, and literally, I just had to walk up to wherever he was, was, and he gathered all, you know, a bunch of chefs, because this was the most important thing that was going on, whatever it was, right? So he made you feel part of something, 
and uh, in a in the most loving way. And he he was, I remember, Preston when 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 Patrick died. Um, he was young. Yeah, he was just 16 years old, and then. Um, after he finished CIA, he came and worked with me for three years. I didn't realize that. And then uh, after I thought he graduated with us at Aquavit, I sent, we sent him to John George, and he worked for John George for maybe eight, nine years. And it was all of our responsibility to to raise Preston, you know. And Preston is a wonderful guy. Uh, he 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 works. Um, uh, uh, for lore right now and it's been with lore for f- good five years yeah. and it's a very successful chef in its own but I, I tell you also about the book right yeah and this is one of my big mentors is Mr. Charlie Trotter mm-hmm. was Mr. Charlie Trotter right and Charlie had the same thing he, he he's like when this thing happened with Patrick yeah Charlie just asked, it said like this, hey, Marcus, you need to test these 20 recipes because we're going to put out a book and it's money going to go to Patrick's family. There's no questions. Like all of a sudden my, my, my fax machine and Aquavit just <laughs> started to shake and it was like a whole list. Mm-hmm. You know, so you work 16 hours and then like after service you got to do recipe testing for Charlie Trotter for Patrick Clark's book and we put this book out. But you're going to do it. You're going to do it because it's your, 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 your mentor, your buddy, your... Everything. So the chef's community works in this incredible way of connectivity. And, um, you know, Charlie was the chef that really opened up the world for younger chefs, but also connected chefs, whether it was from Fran Adria to Little Arun in Chicago, right? So you have, or Patrick Clark and, and Tatsuya in Sydney. So again, this is, it is, it's, it is during internet sort of starts, but it's really not internet and food is not right. really connected. So Charlie does this from Chicago, and Patrick is part of that, and therefore I have to do that. And you know you want to do it, and yeah. it's just uh, and the big dinner was the tavern on the green. Oh yes, and and it was a big big uh, big deal. I I had a friend who was working for Charlie at the time, and he was telling me about flying in and and working yeah. at it. And um, I actually had a co- I have to buy another copy because I gave mine to Kwame when he was nice. on the podcast. His mom used to take him uh, to go and eat Patrick's food yeah. when he when he was growing up, and and he was little, and you know, and he's talked a lot about not having, you know, he you know, really having to seek out people to be mentors to him, you know, coming up through through the kitchens, and that's a hard path. And I've seen you do that for for you know people coming up it's the, the sort of nurturing of, of, of talent mm. and it, does it feel like you know I always think of, of kitchens right now as, as as sort of the past present future uh, you know, kind of kind of thing how are you identifying young talent and reaching out to them and letting them know that they have a place well I think I think my my um, style of cooking and the the subject we've been cooking about really drives a certain individual, right? Uh, I was really a minority when I was cooking Swedish food in Midtown, mm-hmm. right? I wasn't. I didn't look at it being a minority from being a black person, but I was looking at a minority as being a Scandinavian person, right? Yeah, let's talk about how you got to Aquavit, So, But, 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 but yeah. like from that mind, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in Midtown. 
there were no cooks that knew who I was, right? right? right. So the cooks that came were very often, if Rick Moonen was kind enough to send me one over, if uh, uh, Grey Coons, they were all oh, around me, yeah, yeah. send one over, if John George sent one over. So the tribe became the tribe. It was like a punk band, right? Right, right. And then... A couple of years later, a couple of months later, people wanted to be there, right? But the first tribe mm-hmm. was really with the Vinnies and the Kingsleys and uh, the, the, all the beautiful misfits that came to my kitchen. Beautiful misfits. Yeah. Oh. They were there because the food, right? Yeah. And they wanted to learn by pickling and preserving and smoking mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. So then that became us against them, whatever, whoever right. them were. And, and so we... Once we got the stars, it was easier for us. So let's talk. Well, you got, yeah. uh, you were the first, you're the youngest person to get three Michelin stars. Is no, that th- at that point it was just New York Times. Michelin didn't come oh, to the sorry, the first, to fir- but the youngest person to get three New York yeah. Times stars. Yeah. There. But, but you know, so that obviously helped, but, mm-hmm. you know, there was other things. And again, this is before social media. So at 97, we did vegetarian tasting menu every night Mm -hmm. and we did a 16 course bite menu so those were the people who were into that yeah those were the people who came right i went there in the late 90s and that's (laughs) that that's a very specific person so uh and then the other thing i think helped was that i was the same age as the young cooks that were there Right. right and this sets up the moment because when I was traveling and were cooking in France and cooking in wherever I was cooking in Switzerland, the two things you never saw was women and people of color. Mm-hmm. And so it's very clear to you to set up, this is what I'm, when I get a chance to hire, mm-hmm. obviously I'm going to hire a much, much, much bigger uh, in, in a diverse way, right? And, and so my kitchen became known as, obviously, there was all kinds of people in the kitchen. Um, I, I didn't think about, oh, I'm going to do this based on diversity. I'm going to do it because it's, a, it's just a better energy, a better right. kitchen. Oh, you God, know? yes. So like when In any Le- situation. So when, like Le- you know, when Leanne, Leanne Wan came, mm-hmm. for example, and, um, you know, when Richie, you know, came and worked with me for three, Richie um, uh, and, like, poor Carl Michael that is now working with David Chang, worked with David Chang for, for years, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Richie and... Um, um, was Richie and Paul was eighteen, nineteen years okay. old, and they oh, worked with me for three years. Yeah. yeah, and 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 obviously, every you know the fact that Rich is now running probably the biggest restaurant empire in New York City with 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 the Four Seasons and and everything that he's he's he him and his partners has achieved, right? But so those were the type of individuals they wanted to be there, and and. And, you know, Leanne moved from Hawaii to come and cook with us. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so it was a lot of people like that that just felt that it was others were welcomed and the spirit around that was welcome. And we were cooking Scandinavian food, which was before the new Nordic, right? It was mm-hmm. something that uh, was rare, you know, and they wanted to be part of that. I remember going in the late 90s mm-hmm. uh, to Aquavit, and it was sort of, it was during a restaurant week because that's when I could afford yeah. to go. Smart, good to time, good. Restaurant. And I remember going to lunch, and I was so nervous walking in because I felt like I was such a little ragamuffin, you know, my uh, in my my torn thrift store clothes, yeah. you know, just trying. To, nice. I think I'd bought just couple, what we needed. <laughs> oh, I think I'd bought you know a couple of like super cheap like business suits that were probably like super. 
super polyester and stuff because I was so nervous about this because, you know, I was, I moved to New York, you know, after grad school in 96 and stuff. And I, you know, it was broke for a very long time, but I had heard, okay, Aquavate, this is, this is Mm. the place to be. And I remember going in there, um, sitting by the waterfall and distinctly remembering the amazing smell of that. And having roll mops for the yeah. first time. Yeah. And it blew my mind. I had never had these flavors before this pickled fish, yeah. this uh, thing. And, and just going out of there, like, uh, just dazzled, absolutely mm-hmm. dazzled, and made to feel like I, I fit, like it was okay mm-hmm. that even though you know, I saw definitely wealthy people yeah. there and stuff, like there was still room for me as this like broke-ass art kid nice. to come in there and those flavor, I mean, that was a meal that I had in the late 90s, yeah. and I still remember yeah. it so vividly, and mm-hmm. you really did that. And I remember that, that other feeling when I walked into the bar at Red Rooster for the first time, you hadn't been open that long, and just looking around thinking, look at all the beautiful people. And it felt like so many different kinds of people who had all gotten dressed up because it felt like everybody knew it was special to be there. And just the feeling that it, it, it had to walk in there. There's some, That's a culture that you set from the top. Mm-hmm. We're like, this is going to be a place where people, um, they know it's special, but it's also regular because it's neighborhood yeah. kind of things. So how do you begin to have an idea of that kind of restaurant? How do you staff it? How do you make sure that people, because you were talking to the back of the house, how do you make sure that's the case in the front of the house where people know that they're welcome? Yeah. Well, I, I think... It's you know you want to do something that is feel based, right? Mm-hmm. It's for me it's very rhythmic. It's feel based, mm-hmm. right? And then being able to with Aquavit, I I lived that culture, so I knew it in my gut, right? I know exactly what month the matcha's herring is the perfect time, right? So I knew how the texture of a matcha's herring should be, the brininess. With Red Rooster, I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you're black doesn't mean that you know the history of the migration, mm-hmm. right? So I approached it completely different. I studied Harlem. I moved to Harlem seven years before we opened Red Rooster mm-hmm. and had to do what we did, what my father taught me when you come to my fishing village, right? You have to speak to the elderly. You have to... You know, there's certain rules in the fishing village that you have to kind of live by. And it took me seven years to train and learn about the migration. Not so much textbook, right, but what came culturally, what came out of it, mm-hmm. right? And I did not grow up with fried chicken or collard greens, so I did not know what would be the perfect brine and what should I do, dark meat, bone in or skin off or, you know, you, you know all yeah. of these different ways. And when you don't have childhood memory from something and yet you're supposed to cook comfort food, it's very difficult. That's terrifying. So as a challenge, it was right up there with creating a vegetarian or bite menu circa 1998. And I love that challenge, right? Because that keeps you curious, right? And I needed that because I was in desperately need of home and community. Um, you know, and I that's, Harlem has given me and my family so much more than uh, I'm giving Harlem. Um, although we're an extremely successful restaurant and we created a festival and we have a lot of sort of goalpost stuff that you can look at. But post 
I was starting to ask myself the real, real questions. Right. Yeah. Why am I here? And I realized post now that it was a slight depression. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Uh, coming out of my father passed away and I couldn't go to the funerals and I was always away from my family. And I, you know, we all deal with that very differently. 9-11, I cooked at the towers a week before. A lot of people I knew passed. And you start asking yourself meaningful questions. Why am I here? And my mom and I started to talk a lot on the phone about this. Why are you always cooking only for the 1% or mm-hmm. the ban- the rich people? Cook something more affordable. Cook in the neighborhood you live. You know, you didn't grow up this way. So she was really challenging myself on these things. And so that's, what, so, you know, I lived in Mid- I lived by the Time Warner Center, right behind it, and that's some of the most expensive real estate. Well, in the- <laughs> but I where I lived it wasn't, but but anyway, I'm really right behind it. But but yeah. I'm saying, I didn't know my neighbors, and it wasn't yeah. my neighbors' fault, you know. Yeah. So I had that tunnel vision. You wake up, you it's convenient to go to work. You Very didn't talk to anyone. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was in desperate need for for a neighborhood community. and community, and I think. That's what I found in Harlem. And I didn't know it first. The first two, three years, was, it was odd. And then it got, I was like, I belong. And it was, it was doing cooking classes in the community. It was tasting food that didn't end up on someone's blog. You know, it was completely setting out. Although it was only a four-mile or three-mile move, mm-hmm. it was like moving to a new country yes. with a new language. Yes. I, I mean... I remember my sort of entree to Harlem is I have a, a friend who has sadly passed and she, Ellen Robinson, Dr. Ellen Robinson, a.k.a. Mama Diva, a.k.a. China Doll. I love it. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful woman who was best friends uh, with my friend Eric. Um, we had such an interesting relationship. It was very Scott Peacock, Edna Lewis, in that he yeah. was a young gay white man, and she was an older black woman, mm-hmm. and they were best friends. Yeah. They met working at the makeup counter at Estee Lauder Beautiful. <laughs> and became friends. And she was a longtime Harlem resident. She used to go to the balls. Yeah, she, of course. Just an absolute fixture in the neighborhood. And I like remember Paris is burning. She, very. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and, and she was just this extraordinary woman. Beautiful. And, uh, I would go to her um, home for Thanksgiving every year. And when I was a young misfit in New York, my, fr- my I think one of my first Thanksgivings alone um, in New York and, you know, a friend of mine from work said, oh, yeah. come and, and, you know, she'll she'll make you feel warm. And, and I sort of thought like, OK, and I, I hadn't been to Harlem before. Yeah, you didn't know. Like- and, well, I went to her house and it was it's one of the most generous things that anybody has ever done for me. Like for so she accommodated me because like I was uh, mostly vegetarian and, yeah. and she cooked too. But the way that her place was a community hub, people knew that they could just come in and get a plate Yeah, and it was, you know, and it was, it was Beautiful. fun, which is all different kinds of people coming in and out of her apartment. And I would see her slip $5 to somebody yeah. who, who needed it and, and stuff. And it was just such a, an incredible way to experience the neighborhood because she was so of the place mm-hmm. and had been living in her <laughs> apartment for such a long time. I knew her across the like hall neighbors paid like 10 times what she did. And it mm-hmm. was such a great thing, but because she, uh, she was so established there, it was, I felt so lucky to have uh, sort of that view into her life and, the, and that she was so kind to make me, you know, part of it. Part of yeah. And, and that that was, and, and she did it through food that people would come in and, and get this plate from her and, and stuff. And I, you know, had the privilege of like having Thanksgiving with her every year for a, a very long time in, until she passed. And, um, and it's just funny that when, when I walked into Red Rooster having that same sort of, 
you know, food is a connector, and there were some of the same dishes that yeah. that she she served. Uh, she had she had taught me to make uh, collard greens. Yeah, and it was a beautiful thing. And but to walk into your restaurant and having that that same thing um, was that a, a, because there's such an established culture. And as you were saying, the rules. I learned the rules from her. I mm-hmm. very much learned mm-hmm. the rules from her. Did you feel like you had to earn a place? being there, being part of the community? Did people sort of say like, yes, this is right, this is wrong? How did you learn to sort of be a good citizen of Harlem? No, but it's being a good neighbor Mm -hmm. and uh, those skills are something that you don't find on a blog or you don't read in a paper. It's like being part of it, right? Like I knew that I could offer something. Yeah. And that was cooking. Yeah. So... I did cooking classes for after church programs. I did cooking. I cooked in, in the park, where, by the way, also I learned about, you know, the best cornbread is in in in, in church or or, yeah. or it, <laughs> it's it, it being in and of the community is not a name tag. Mm-hmm. That is being around and how, knowing, like speaking to someone photographer like Dawood Bay, for example, that has documented from Harlem from the 40s all the way up to now, uh, looking at Gordon Park's images, going to the Schomburg to understand yeah. menus. So that is the documentation part of it. The other part of it is being in the community, right? Mm-hmm. And that could be, um, you know, cooking at a block party. Very different. Well, I was like, we cooked for events and charities for the last 15 years in New York City mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you don't know why you're there here I'm in my neighborhood yeah. it's very clear and apparent why I'm here mm-hmm. so it was shifting it was literally not looking at I knew that moving to Harlem it was one part of me that I had to give up and one part of me a new part that I had to gain and yeah. that's part of changing right yeah. and that I wasn't afraid of that I was excited about that mm-hmm. right and and Harlem doesn't operate on on necessarily um, awards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it has its completely different language, and then eventually time will make sure that um, people well, look at Dapper Dan. Right? He did fashion, way and style. Yeah. And he didn't do it based on if if Vogue would come and get him. Mm-hmm. He just did it because it was his craft in his neighborhood. And eventually time retro, you know, <laughs> caught up. And I look at it the same way. Like, I knew that, oh, whatever was the standard before, I would not no, no more longer be on those lists. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That could be, that, that you, you, you can have different thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no. This is this isn't the forever game. This is going to be longer. This is going to be more meaningful, and this is what I need at this moment, right? And this is what my community needs, and this is how I can assist and contribute. And whether, you know, this value proposition that we have around urban communities and food, it's not in an article. You know, this is uh, uh, decisions that America carefully crafted together since Jim Crow mm-hmm. about these food apartheid that have, Absolutely. have this is not something that just happened yeah. this is a good 50 60 years of carefully put it, put together uh, of people who have and don't have so how do you create a dining destination yes. out of that it's not a 5 minute conversation and that's why this humble beginning for me in 2000 started at 2002 mm-hmm. i knew this is 30 40 years of work that we i have to put in and I gladly 
you know, uh, and it will look different, right? The first seven years was the study. Now the restaurant been open for nine years. Year two was building Ginny's. Year three, we built the food festival, right? Mm-hmm. Harlem Meetup, that now 14,000, 15,000 people are coming That's to. That's incredible. And, and even the food festival, right? Explaining that, yeah, it will be Danielle and Mike from the Crab Shack. Right. It will be Massimo Batoro and Aisha that sells cookies. That's a very different cooking uh, uh, proposition than a normal food festival. Yeah. And half of the festival, by the way, is for free. And to even explain to your chef buddies, but to have that incredible buy-in of the Bobby Flays and, and the Mashama and the, the Emma Bengtson and the food stars of our today say, no, I want in. I want in. And a lot of that has to do with you have the credibility with with so many people. People trust you because you have done mm-hmm. this work. And like Marcus Marcus says this thing, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be a part mm-hmm. of it. And that has that goes a lot toward all the work that that you have done, the credibility yeah. that you have uh, like that's such a beautiful thing about you is like you have credibility mm-hmm. in a whole lot of different worlds and do you think that is because you come from a lot of of different worlds like where does that that come from the is there a need to be a chameleon is there a just you find your your place where where you find it is that a thing that comes naturally to you i think two things i think that the blessings of being black and the blessings of being an immigrant have put me in so many unique positions. And even being adopted have put me in so many unique positions. So you learn at an early age that, you know, like, you know, maybe when I was like 10, like, you know, we had dinner conversations around the word nigger. What does that mm-hmm. mean? And we used to say it a lot at home, so you take the value out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if everyone says right. they have zero value, right? Mm-hmm. But you're 10 and you're 11 mm-hmm. and you're 12. And then, you know, that's training. Right. <laughs> you know, because that's a, it's a word that sort of cuts through. And when, in, in, when you said it, I had a body yeah. reaction. No, so, yeah. so, so that's like, and your parents are teaching you this. You know, are not of color, yeah, but they practicing yeah. what the future is going to withhold, right? right? And whether you, so you have choices after that, right? And and um, your sisters are a little bit older, understood it better, and then like, you know, they have to kind of like translate it the way the way right. <laughs> sisters and brothers do. You right, know what I mean? Right. Or cousins do? You know? So those were situations that uh, prepared me for this moment. And, um, um, you know, going from, you know, being told at a very early age that you can never own a restaurant, you can never lower your ambitions, right? Um, Those things create clarity. So what do you do? Like when you work at Three Star Michelin, you have these ambitions and it's you're part of the tribe. You feel like you're part of the tribe, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And in... With women, it's very often a, a glass ceiling, and, and and it's outside looking. It's the same feeling outside looking in, right? How do you get in, whatever that in is? Yeah. So how do you walk around it, and um, how do you push through? So I think you know, for me, it came together when I met my birth father, because um, part of it you grow up with, and part of it you just born with. And he he died at ninety. You know, it's a tribe leader, and you could tell, like, he had a... You, I realized then, like, okay, wow, I was born into someone that had a lot of strength. You know, yeah. I didn't know that, right? 
I your bones knew it. Yeah, and you, you know you just don't when you know yeah. we have never seen your parents' faces or anything like that. So it was important for me to meet him. How old were you? Uh, I was 25, 24, 25. Okay. This is all in the early 2000s, same time as I yeah. realized I'm going to leave Akbavit. I'm going to say goodbye to this world as I know it that I worked so hard to be part of right. in order to enter this new world, right? And and doing it very disciplined, but actually planning it out and all of this stuff. But So I met my birth father, and again, we don't speak the same language, Uh but there were things that you can see that we inherited at the same time. And um, just learning that sense level of strength and, and, and not thinking too much about being a representative, but thinking about the responsibility of that, you know? So looking at his face, yeah, it's an amazing thing when you see somebody who is related to you and and shares your DNA that that sort of shock of recognition mm-hmm. is uh, it's a really really strong thing and I've you know I, a lot of my friends are adopted mm-hmm. and you know and some of them have, have found their birth parents and just that uh, there's a there, there's a chemical thing there's something that that happens I, I imagine looking at his face had to be a pretty powerful yeah it was many things like yeah. I I saw him actually from the he had a stick and I saw him from the back when we drove mm-hmm. up and um, we have the same walk, like we are. Wow! Are wow! And then he right away. That's him. It's like because we have like a little, a slightly tiny, like just bent on our back. Uh, he had this long hair, all gray. So I'm like, all right, I'm not gonna be bald. <laughs> Don't <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two things. And then it was just amazing. But but um, and again, because I've lived in so many different places, connecting without speaking the language was mm-hmm. not foreign to me. Right. But seeing that hut for the first time, walking into that hut, and yeah. imagine like seven people, including myself and my sister, have lived in this hut. Wow. It was uh, it was what I needed to, we all need different things to fuel us. But so, so that was one thing, but I, I also want to tell you a little bit about, I felt I needed to move to Harlem because I've also gained so much of, from African American culture. Yes. You know, when you think about the civil rights movement and as a black person, everything that, every law that ever changed is because of the civil rights movement. So when I think about, when you speak to Leah Chase or you speak to Alberta Wright, spoke to Alberta Wright, or you spoke to someone like Sylvia Woods, right? So this idea that women and food would not right. be equal greatness, oh it's God. for me like women completely, so like I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. And but talk about think about risk takers, right? In mm-hmm. this this moment, so Leah opened a restaurant in the '40s, Dookie Chase. Yeah, mm. and she broke the law every day. Yes, she did by <laughs> staying open by serving a mixed room, right? So imagine she broke the law for for a good time before in, in the laws changed, right? So you look at laws and then you look at what you have to do right and she did what you have to do and she let civil rights uh leaders meet at the restaurant in in secret too which is uh what a scary proposition scary proposition but that was more important than and talking about what so the core word of restaurant which means to restore your community she lived that right then you think about someone like uh, sylvia woods that took a five thousand dollar loan in 1962 to open a diner right and that's entrepreneurship, but that's also 
everything, right? Like we're going to s- set up here. So people, Black women or women has always been in the core of transforming Absolutely. Uh, those neighborhoods, right, and keeping the lights on. And there's not, a, you know, the fact that we didn't have enough value proposition of that, that's on us. That's not on them. And the fact that now people are seeking out that, I think that's, that's amazing. You know, like when I spoke to, you know, I used to live in Hell's Kitchen in Alberta, right? Jezebel's was on 45th and 9th, and I used to live right across the street. And walking into Jezebel's was a little bit of magic, you know? You sit at the bar. She she designed it the way, you know, like uh, straight out of a black vintage shop from the South, something like that, right? (laughs) It's just her style. It's just fabulous, right? And she could have Denzel Washington and Madonna in the room, but Alberta was the biggest star. She hosted and do not even like think <laughs> that anyone else. And just hosting with that yeah. level. So I was in the. I was lucky enough to come to New York to meet the Patricks, to meet the Albertas, right. to be around the. When was Leas. she around? So so uh, Alberta was basically the whole. It started in the eighties okay. and all the way. And Alberta had Jezebel's in in Paris as well. Oh. And that's where Madonna <laughs> used to go when she came, of right. course, right? right? So this idea that growth, that black restaurants could grow internationally, of course they could. That was, of course, why not? I'm fabulous, the restaurant's going to be fabulous, and this is what we do. And I just those were the people that I looked at that was not in many books, that I looked at like, these people are keeping the lights on. And Red Rooster is really a celebration of all of that, right? Yeah. And and someone like B. Smith. Yes. Um, there was a, a bar called Shark Bar on the Upper West Side that, you know, the way Melba entertains, right? So all of that was, is really uh, Red Rooster. It's, it's really identity out of all of that. And I was lucky enough to stand in the corner and see it could not quite fully understand everything because I didn't grow up in a Baptist church and I didn't, my uncle and auntie was not from South Carolina. So I had to study it. And the only way to do it was to be in the community, asking questions, taking part, and, and, and learning. And it was an amazing ride. So you've, you've cited these incredible restaurants owned by black women and a lot of them have been around for a long time miss chase is 94 Mm -hmm. 95 and people who are listening go to new orleans Mm -hmm. and get it go to dookie chase and and go there on a friday Mm -hmm. lunch if you can (laughs) if you can go on a uh on a holy thursday Uh, go nice. well, yeah. Well, you can. I mean, there's a reason there is a Sweet. Disney princess. Yes. who is the reason why Beyonce puts her in her uh, video. Yeah. You know what I mean? But then it felt like there was a a gap. Like black women were not getting the capital or access to resources to open places. And now, I really, really hope that that tide is turning because you see, like in the Gray in Savannah. You see, uh, Mashama just came in and recorded with us and stuff. So she's very much on my mind. But do you see? other uh, black women getting capital to head up restaurants and if not so what can be done to have that next generation of of black women and black men owning restaurants well it's a question that requires a little bit longer answer because it it connects to 
working in hospitality for people of color, I think it's the only tribe in America that has a stigma around it, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of black people came out of servant, yes. not of the domestic. Yes. So when the next generation in the 50s and the 60s had an opportunity to go to college, the fir- they worked really hard to get out of the kitchens. Right. So sending them to cooking school and hospitality school was not necessarily a first choice. So that's one, and you can just park that. Mm-hmm. Second, which have never happened to any other, very few, I don't know any other country that's done this, right? As an immigrant, I could get a bank loan, but as an African-American, I couldn't get a bank loan. Now think about that. That, that is not a small thing. That is? <laughs> that is everything, right? Yes. So no access to capital and a stigma, mm-hmm. right? And then in the 70s, when cooking becomes a profession, right? If you look at a lot of traditions, there's two types of restaurants emerging. There's either the restaurants in pre-segregation, integration restaurants that are neighborhood, very often what we consider soul food restaurants. Mm -hmm. Or if you go to the South, there could be barbecue restaurants, Mm -hmm. but they're they're very much mom and pop, it's, right? And very much in a, a sort of niche. Yeah, it's a niche. Then out of that comes very few black chefs that are now chefs in their restaurants, but they don't get the title. Mm-hmm. So they're sous chefs, but they're actually chefs. But they're, so they don't get the salary. So what happens with a lot, and you, there's still this tribe left at the world of Astoria and big hotels. So th- in order to, to support their families, they become servers in front of the house instead. Right, so a whole generation of talent has now moved out of the kitchen and said, "Hey, to pay my bills, I'm going to be a banquet server instead of something like that." Because you can huh? get better tips. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. So, because at that point in the '70s, when cooking becomes a craft, you know, cooking stems out of French as we know it, right? Mm-hmm. Although cooking has been around for thousands of years, <laughs> they get the credit. And then the second tribe out of that are Swiss or Germans, right? So still, there's someone like Patrick Clark that cuts through all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the Alberta, right? And then you look at the Sylvias of the world. They're still carving out their own piece. Alberta is not necessarily um, coming from the cooking. She comes from the entertainment, right? right? Which is a l- little bit different. So she hosts more than she thinks about the recipes. So there... So, my whole point is that the aspirations of being a chef might not be there because we're supposed to go to do economics or, or, or other, other jobs, right? Then you have the stigma. Then you don't have access to capital. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't become an aspirational work right. the way other professions are, right? Yes. And all of that combined... Then you go up into the 80s and the 90s where the gatekeepers are pretty much, it's very few, right? You have the New York Times, you have New York mm-hmm. Magazine, you have Bon App, you have uh, Food and Wine. Food and wine. You, yep. Of course, mm-hmm. you have the gourmets of the world. And although we've been great at every April, there's an Italian month. There's never been celebration of, like, forget just black history, right? Mm-hmm. Month. We've never done a deeper dive on creating these aspirations for tourists in within our own country, right? So saying, go to Oakland and eat. Go to NOLA to eat and, de- and seek out these restaurants, right? It might be one article a year, but, th- you know, the way we invested back in 
Italy months every April. <laughs> right. You think about that for decades. So that's France that, month. Yeah, France months, right? So we've done a great job of in, in invest of what the aspiration should be internationally. People with money in America probably know more about Tuscany right. than they do know about Newark or Harlem in terms of what the taste bud is, yeah. right? Now, that's crazy. Yes, the, uh, agreed. So where do then, and then you say, well, where does black women fit into this? Chefing mm -hmm. then was also very different than our industries today. Today you can have a blog. Today you, for, you can have a restaurant. Today you can have a daytime restaurant. You can carve out a space very differently than you could before. And I think that's why also because of social media, the gatekeepers are, you know, uh, not the same. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, when I think about Adrian Cheatham, an oh, amazing talent, just, right? Yes. And, and we, you know, we worked together very closely for three years. Uh, Mashama just did a dinner with us for Harlem Meet Up, right? Think about what Nina is doing oh, yes. in, in NOLA, right? I think about what Naisha is doing in L.A. Uh, you think about, and, and I can mention 15 other incredible women um, of color that are cooking that have not yet got the same level of recognition, but are on the same level in terms of narrative and cooking and know-how. I I don't know if there's more, but there's more people that can support each other and talk to one another, and that's what this moment. Why I love this moment so much. So very much my job in this is to be able to set a set a place, right? So to ha you know to make sure that I mentor Adrian, to make sure that we broadcast the dinner with Mashama, to make sure that you know. We do these things to set the table, uh, and then pull back in the background and 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 just assist in any way we can. I think that's I I this is all so important. And you know, with the food one class of best new chefs, mm -hmm. we are setting each person up uh, with have some of this water. Um, <laughs> Thank you. We are setting uh, each person up with a mentor because we realize that people are not getting that they're, they're they're not getting those role models and stuff and there was one person who you know we asked them what they want and she specifically like wanted a woman of color to mentor her nice. and nina compton beautifully yes. like stepped up and is is going to help Great. and you know we we just it's I, I, you know you brought up the publications and the gatekeepers and we've more and more been having this conversation about how it's our you know it's our ethical and moral responsibility to step up to offer mentorship and you know if we're putting somebody in the spotlight it is our responsibility also to give them good mentorship because it's really incredibly scary to be exposed in, in front of the world. All of a sudden you have this new audience and people haven't necessarily taught you how to deal with the media or, you know, so many things come with that kind of exposure. So it's something that we're looking at. What I really hope for having a spotlight on a lot of these chefs is um, we're partnering with MoFAD over the next year to do this. Um, there's going to be this incredible exhibit that is about the history of black cooking in mm -hmm. in uh, the U.S. and really shining a light on on so many of these people who've been cooking for a long damn time and uh, sort of the roots of that, but also having the contemporary chefs who are coming in. There was a dinner um, a couple weeks ago, and I got to meet a lot of sort of young chefs who were coming up who I hadn't gotten to meet before and thinking, shame on me for, first of all, not knowing and digging enough, but... It's not, it's not, you know, I mean, I, I, you can't put it on. Uh, I think you show a level of curiosity and want desire and that you, because you have, 
you want to meet great people in our industry. So that curiosity will, will drive you to some amazing. And I think as a chef, you should be curious. As a journalist, you should yeah. be curious. As, and as, Human. A, <laughs> as a diner. Yeah, you, you that's know what the mean? thing. So once you have that, I mean, I call this moment um, the new noir, right? Yeah, it is, I love that. It, it is a moment. And I, I, I think about I think about everything you said, but but end of the day, you got to go your own way. Yeah. Or you're going to go my way, right? That's it. Like, there is no... Everything that we... Everything for me that I admire, right, mm-hmm. has always been oddballs. It's not... Yeah. Been, you know, and <laughs> the beautiful can, misfits, as yeah, I said. and I'm like, whether I was a kid and I saw a picture of Phil Akuti the first time mm-hmm. or I, whether I saw David Bowie the first time, oh, right? Beautiful freak. Or I saw uh, Prince... Or like when I think about my childhood, yeah. right? Like in cooking, you know, I looked at Basquiat, like not because yeah. of cooking, because there was f- fine art, and here was this kid doing that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so for me, it's always been you, you gotta, you, you gotta figure out. Uh, are you gonna go? Like, are you? What is the? You know, what is the tune? What is direction you're gonna go in? Mm-hmm. And that might not be fit into this moment, yeah, right? But you still got to do, you still got to believe in it so much because if you don't believe in it enough, it's not going to be strong enough anyway, right? And, you, and I, music has been a place for me that I see it more, you know, like um, when something sounds odd, but you know it's the right music for you or you when something oh, does food, I, I, it's I, right. You got to go your own way. Those you know? moments are locked into and, my heart. And I think as one of the blessings of being black is that we always have to go our own way. Yeah. And I never l- look at, like, list or who's the latest here. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't, that's like, yeah. like it, you have to operate on a level that has both humility and arrogance because you just got to go. And if curry sorbet with oyster is your thing, now do the best goddamn curry sorbet with oyster in the world, right? And these things may or may not ever come, but if you keep doing it, and that's what speaks to you, right? Someone will find out, and that somebody will snap, tweet, Insta, <laughs> uh, whatever it is, and it will come to you. And I think DAP is, an, is such a brilliant example of that. It was not following fashion. It was following his inner core mission of being... Uh, um, in a community, of a community, for people, and then the world will come to that. And I, that's, honestly, I don't want to be quasi about it, but that's why I, I, that's how I look at it. You know, I look at, still look at someone like Leah. Yeah. I still look at someone like Fela Kuti. I still look at Prince. I, I, you know, I don't know which chef or what list. I have zero interest to it I'm, I'm committed to food and I know some amazing people in food and I'm so excited to share and tell their story I love it you're such a good storyteller for a good hype man for other people which I've always appreciated yeah, a little flavor flavor is not bad I I, I, <laughs> I just I find the people who I love and I want to shout their praises and be their hype man and go yeah. out there and can I just say one more thing about this yeah of I don't course. think I think that I was thinking about actually last maybe it was last yeah it was last year because um, uh, as as uh, you were, um, you gathered all the chefs together at a food conference in Aspen. Yeah, and it was very sweet. And I was actually, you know, crying with um, with um, 
AZ. Oh, I've got uh, a lot of friends. We were, we were standing Zimmer. in the corner, yeah. and Zimmerman was just like really. Um, he was just hugging me. We're like, yeah. we, it was so random. We were outside the hotel, and I, I, uh, you know, it's like people coming in, and I was like, I was just standing there, bawling on his shoulder. It was yeah. like really. It was just like, um, yeah, it was just a moment. And he, you know, we talked about that. But I think that the human side of chefing, right, is that you, we've transformed so much, right? Think about the fact that you can get any recipe you want in your phone on your way to work, right? And the fact that people are going to respond to that. We are so far away from why a generation got into food, right? Cooking for hundreds of years, as we knew it, was told by French people, 99.1, out of French men. If you were not a French man, maybe you were Swiss or maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> even Italian, right? I'm not saying that's right, but that's the school that was taught to us. And then you have these amazing people like Julia and Shock and Alice Waters that and Leah that just opened up other, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, the farmer can actually be linked to the restaurant and it's happening in Berkeley. It does not have to be with a French accent. Whoa, what a new idea, right? Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking, exactly. Yeah. And 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 it got a little bit more opened up and open up and eventually you have people like Nobu that, oh, you realize that all good food doesn't have to come from <laughs> France. And it sounds like so natural today, right? But it wasn't for a very, very long time. So out of that came a hierarchy that a whole generation of amazing chefs came up, and we laugh at this, but we came up abused. Absolutely. So Physically, mentally, yeah, emotionally, level, everything. Right? So, I mean, I had, when I worked in Switzerland and France, I had a seven-minute rule that I threw up every day, right? And I knew in seven minutes how to throw up, clean myself up. No, throw, take my apron off right before I would throw up, run to the bathroom, clean myself up, come back. If I, I can do all of that in six minutes oh. and then go back on the line, it, and no one would notice. My, is, my partner would it, notice. Is right? this from stress? The, stress the and nervous and like someone screaming at you in French and you learn French and someone screams at you in German. Throwing something throwing at you, throwing hitting at you. Or punching, all, all of the above, right? And and the only good thing about being black there is that um, at least they were equal opportunists. Everybody got <laughs> everybody <laughs> got yelled at. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so so you you deal with that, right? Yeah. And it goes somewhere in the body. You know, it goes somewhere. Yes. And so the whole tribe of the next sort of the the, the chefs that come through up in the '90s and comes up in the early 2000s, we come out of that, and we all know that. We should not do it this way. This is not going to happen on our dime. But that obviously, it takes a twist and it takes a turn. And I'm not... Trauma alters your brain. Yeah. So there's a whole generation that came up abused. Yeah. And there's so little actually talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that I, I think we should forgive and forget. But there, there's the, that, just set pause around that. If you would ask a question more, were there, did you come up abused? what type of abuse was around. So just open a conversation around it, which I know that you're working on so much. I think that's another way to talk about what you're never going to go back to, right? Can we as an industry, and we can, 
evolved just as we've done with ingredients, just as we've done with medium, and creating great spaces, safe spaces, you know, and know what we're not going to go back to, right? And I think that's what's great about this moment in the conversation you're having. You're opening up another dialogue. So that was, those were the dark times. We're not going back to that. And now how do we sort of keep what's good about our industry? Because the same, industry, the same people that got abused are also some of the most incredible oh, teachers, chefs, community leaders, uh, the, some of the most generous people you will ever meet in your life. And those are polar opposite, but they're both in our industry. Oh, people, I've seen people have to do the very active work of rewiring their brain, essentially. People who I've had a lot of conversations with who say, like, yeah, I was I was abused coming up, and I was, for a long time, that screaming asshole in the kitchen who threw, who yelled, who do whatever, because I didn't see another way. And then a lot of them got to a point where maybe they broke whether it was with a, like a physical breakdown, whether they had an emotional breakdown, whether they got sober, whatever this this thing is, and then they realize I can't do that anymore and had to unlearn all of that. And but they have a lot of that push pull of how do I still achieve the same kind of excellence and not have it come from this place? Oh, I paid my dues, so you have to as well. But I I I, I was around a couple of deaths. At yeah. a very early age, and so that gives you a very clear um, what not to. Yeah, and it scared the shit out of me. So I became I was way, I was chef at twenty three years old. I had no right to be chef at twenty three, and I was not supposed to be. Uh, but my chef died. He OD'd. Oh, Jesus! And um, the night when it happened, um, he went crazy. On, um, on a young say student, an incredibly young kid working with us. And it was a bad Saturday night. And it was, everybody knew this is a bad day, this is bad. Ignore what, what we saw. And we just, you know, moved on for the next service. Mm -hmm. And we were all scared. Shut up and cook. Yeah, shut up and cook. And I was just like, let me just get my knives and get out of here. And, you know, when service is over. And, Everyone knew it was bad. No one looked each other in the eyes. It was just like, let's get the hell out of here. And some of the team went out to party, and this was a wonderful guy at the same time, but he just had issues, yeah. and he OD'd and uh, died that night. You know, and it's horrible. Yeah. Like, he didn't deserve to die, and the kid didn't deserve to get abused, and it was just bad, gone worse, gone horrible, and now there's no comeback. Now it's just bad. And that gives you clear, like, what the line is and what not to cross over from every aspect. And no one can tell me that didn't happen. All those 20 people that were there in that room knew it happened. And then you have the ultimate, the young chef. He was just 30, 31, 32 when it happened. He died. And it it just scared me forever, you know. So... Um, I had a couple of, I mean, Switzerland. It was a couple of things that happened that you just like. There was all around this stress um, and, and drugs and all this shit. So I was always in fear of it uh, because I've seen it, and um, I don't want anyone to have to go through those lessons. But it's there, you know. What it's I mean? so present. And uh, you can ask any chef from that era. Also, probably been around similar things. 
and it's just something that that was like the tax of coming up in a certain era and pushing through everything and it shouldn't be that tax you know that's i mean that's actually why i started chefs with issues the unacceptable loss mm-hmm. just like i don't want to hear about another death i don't want to hear about another you know whether it's a suicide or a slow suicide as Mm -hmm. you know it often is the month after i started it there were three suicides in Mm -hmm. the industry and they happen constantly and when i started really talking about this publicly i i got a lot of like oh finally we're doing this and then a lot of there was a certain amount of pushback about like why are you trying to tell us what to do you've never worked in a kitchen Mm and you know shut up and cook um the day that you were talking about when we were all and we got people together, it was a week after Anthony Bourdain took his own life. And that was uh, that was an unignorable moment for a lot of, of people. And that particular day, we got about 30 some people mm-hmm. together in the basement of a restaurant that wasn't open and cried. Mm-hmm. Um we cried and talked about how to cope and how to bring it, uh, the conversation to other communities and move it forward. And this year, you know, I went, I, you know, given this talk at Mad Symposium in 2016 and, and talked about it and there was, you know, half and half <laughs> people wanted to talk about it. People didn't in 2018. Everybody did because that was, you know, we lost this person who was this lion of our industry and who really, uh, he was the line cook made good. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I always think. And there's and, many people in, in, People's gone culturally, like you talk about speaking about something in that. Now you're you're not in San Francisco. You're not in New York. Yeah. You're in Copenhagen. Yeah. So you're in a culturally, this lives and feels very differently. Yeah. Just and and people deal with mm-hmm. this very differently based. You know, it's not just all a New York state of mind, right? Oh, I was and talking I think to a Swedish. The, and <laughs> no, and I think that's great that yeah. you brought it. You know, you you had the guts to stand there and talk about something. Because it does uh, live differently in in Japan, in Copenhagen, in San Francisco, and how we're culturally allowed to speak about things. You know, it's just a very culturally different place. So I think that the fact that you have a room that is fifty fifty that that shows um, a sign of normalcy because people are going to come to it how their culture are allowed to deal with it, right? Yeah. And the fact that you open it up, anytime anybody opens something up, it's uncomfortable in the beginning. We got to we gotta deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I always say the, uh, you know, it's awkward if your sous chef cries in front of you or your line cook or whatever, but uh, would you rather be crying at their funeral? I mean, it, that's the stakes of it, really. Mm-hmm. Awkwardness, uh, I, <laughs> I give a talk sometimes called an awkward conversation never killed anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's got to happen, whether it's around mental health, whether it's around race, whether it's around, you know, sexual assault, whatever like that. We have to have those those conversations. And, and but 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 diversity, I mean, is is wide, right? It's culturally, it's sexually, it's race, it's all of, all of these things. And I think that, you know, any community as we are have different people in it. Some people cook, some people document on it, some people a diner, some people yeah. are all of the above, right? So I think that it's, it doesn't matter who drives the conversation as mm-hmm. long as we're generally in the conversation. And you need different stakeholders to drive Absolutely. this dialogue forward. So whether you're a, whether you're lying, have been a line cook or not, it's almost like that's like, a, um, you know, it's the, he, the here or there, right? What's more important is that we, we as a culture 
are dealing with all aspects of what is very demanding, but also very privileged. It's a privilege for me to be part of this industry. Um, it's a privilege for me to have uh, to raising a lot of cooks and being able to do that, and that people still want to know what we have to say. You know, so I don't look at it as as a burden, but I do think that you have to set out your own way. There, you can't look at so much of these so-called pressure things, you have to set up your own goals, no matter what. And each place has different. If your goal is to uh, have 20 seats every night filled, let's do that. And let's do that well. If your goal is to have 150 seats, there's different. If your goal is to just inc- increase the knowledge and the culture in the restaurant, that will then lead to the 20 seats or whatever right. that is. And there's no, there's no list, there's no... Um, Outside validation in many ways, you have to really be strong on your inside validation. And um, that's hard. It's really hard because you're out there in the beginning and no one else is listening, it feels <laughs> like, but someone is listening. You know, I think there's some great, great examples of that with, with No Passport. I've been so fortunate oh, to be able... Oh, it's a beautiful show. Yeah. Thank you. I've been fortunate to go to these pick cities and meet some great immigrant communities. And, um, you know... At an early stage, be part of, um, let's say, Seattle and, and, you know, a restaurant like Archipelago, which is husband-wife team, is really cooking and serving and thinking about your experience. Or, or you know, see Indigo with Jonathan Rhodes in, in Houston, really being there early and watching him and his wife, you know, in a very rough part of town, setting a new experience, right? So... I see that this dialogue of our community is happening all over the country. Uh, some people are being broadcasted and some people are not, but that's not the reason why they went into it. You know, Archipelago or Indigo did not go into it because of, they went in because they felt they had something to say, you know, and they can really make a difference in their communities. Yeah. What would you say to... Marcus from 20 years ago. Grab Marcus 20 years ago by the shoulders. What do you want to tell him? I wish in many ways that I could have done it in a way that I wouldn't have missed out so much on my own, on family matters. You know, funeral, birthdays, um, yeah. graduations, uh, just family matters. You know, my like just that I just did not know how to take a break and how to part of it was because I couldn't travel because of my pa- like truth it's the level of being an immigrant right you're waiting for your papers you can't go anywhere just taking more time out taking time off like real vacation yeah. and so that downside uh, that I think would have helped a lot for my, for for the development of the relationship within, within, you know, my extended family, yeah, and just being able to do, I just had no vocabulary for it, you know, I had no clue, yeah, absolutely no clue. Hopefully, somebody young will hear that <laughs> and realizing, yeah. like, you know, as uh, I forget who I was talking to recently said, it's just dinner, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, so, 
you are incredible about like with your with your show with no passport with just everything you do with Harlem Eat Up and stuff. You're you're great hype man for everyone else and and you do so much for other people with all the projects you do this is this is a moment i would say like the oprah moment like i believe in saying things out loud a thing that you want for yourself what is the selfish thing that you want want for you that you can here's where you let the universe help you say the thing so the universe can (laughs) come and and help you get this thing whatever it is um, I wish that, honestly, that the farmer's markets in urban communities would be affordable and culturally relevant and numerous way of paying so people in and of those communities can actually be part of it. I, I talk a lot to my son about it. He's only three, two and a half. Like, hey, when you grow up, it's going to be normal for us to just go to this farmer's market. It's not going to be an event, you know. Um, when you grow up, I'm like, if we see a police officer, I'm like, you're going to run over to him and give him an apple or something like that. I, would talk, I talk about this like this is rather than have to, that might be the talk as a black man I will have to my son that is positive to meet the police officer Yeah. versus should I have the talk with him. And I think about what that talk should be. And I think about if we do this right, I think the talk with Zion at 11 is not going to be about avoiding police officers. It's not going to be that farmer's market is just for certain people that have a certain amount of money. Uh, so I think about that a lot. Oh, I'm excited for your kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I want him to have that. I yeah. want you to have that mo- those moments with your son. Oh, we have some lighter questions. Oh, good. <laughs> um, what is your comfort food? Um... I have a Swedish, there's a cod roll um, conserva like, like I grew up with, and it's like a, it's like a paste. It's called Kallis Caviar. Uh, if you're not Scandinavian, you're not going to dig it. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's great. I put it on crisp bread, and I'm off, ready to go. Where do you get it? Uh, when I go back home, oh. just, like, <laughs> fill it up, uh, and, <laughs> fill up a tub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all have those things. Yeah, that are probably, like those. it ain't pretty. <laughs> it, 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 it. And most people, if you're not from the culture, right? Mm. The facial expressions are amazing. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, it's like literally, how can you possibly like oh this? And it's amazing. I want to try this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love really bold yeah. oh, like, no. flavors and stuff. Like, oh, I want yeah. That. I love that. Oh, what is the last meal you had that made you emotional? I think, honestly, eating and cooking with Jonathan at Indigo, for his 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 thought process and his hustle with his wife, how hard they. And where is it? In Houston. Okay. Uh, that was because it wasn't just the food; it was the amount of thought process he went into it and doing it where he's doing it. It's amazing. I love it. What is the last meal? Well, look, I have to say, yeah. I have to say, cooking with Mashama in oh. in uh, in Harlem, Mashama owned it, right? Mm-hmm. Mashama and Emma cooked, so we do this luminaire dinner, and I always have female chefs doing that dinner. We had amazing, like Angela from Mission Chinese and formerly from Mission Chinese, and and Dominique, and like the best. 
like just always and I just felt like this year I wanted Emma and Mashama and they just crushed it and it wasn't just about the dinner like Mashama and Emma they wrapped all the cooks came to them oh. and they danced afterwards and it was their moment and for me it was just like that worked that worked that was good That's, for I, the soul you know? I saw Mashama before she was, mm-hmm. was going to do that and mm-hmm. the week before I'd gotten to see her get her James Beard award yeah. and that was it's God, what a joy. I mean, it's my favorite so picture from that is when she's at the airport. Well, and she, oh, it's awesome. You have to go back on Insta. And she's flexing. She's like, like <laughs> in the airport with the award. And just it's a best oh, picture. God. I love her. <laughs> she's flexing. It's great. It's I awesome. I can't wait to read the book that yeah, she yeah. is writing with Jono. Or yeah. like, uh, was it Black, White, and Gray? I'm so psyched for yeah, this. It's great. Oh, my God. What is the last time that somebody cooked for you in their home? What did they make? Um, I had a really good fufu in, in, um, no, actually I would say, um, there's a Filipino dish called karikari, which is sort of like a, I had it with, you can have it with oxtail and you can have it with, I actually had it with oxtail and crab, which was amazing at the chef Melissa, but we were at her house and we cooked it. She cooked it with her, her father and, and, uh, mom and her dad operates their home kitchen like he's an executive chef although she's the <laughs> chef so her father is like knife and they have to give her a knife oh my god <laughs> it's amazing this thing is like we all become like like cooks for her dad which is amazing <laughs> we had to chuck oysters with like big you know not oyster knives and he just called it out and everyone oh, had to well, do it i love it was amazing Oh my god! It was good. It was I, really good. Did anybody take video? Did they? Did they shot some of it, but it was just like <laughs> that moment. Which just like the minute you enter the kitchen, he just became like chef, chef, and we were all like, "It's like cilantro, <laughs> nice." <laughs> Oh it was my awesome. God. awesome. That makes me so happy. Yeah. Now, this is a funny question for you because I have a feeling that you have actually done this a lot. Mm. What living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook for them? Um, I probably do like a vegetarian tasting for, for, for Prince. You know? What living musician? Oh, I, I mean, know, he, he lives in my. I, I mean, know. My, I, 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 I can't think we'd all so- want to make like breakfast for Prince. <laughs> I know. I know, like he, he's talking about food a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like who co- who comes walking into the restaurant and you're like, got you. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm still with friends. <laughs> I'm still because it's, like, it's also music. Yeah. Living or not, they gave us so much, so it's right. like right. There's that. like I cannot imagine you're a kid in the black kid in the 80s in Sweden you, 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 you listen to music and all of a sudden there's videos oh, and then you realize that you could be different what a beautiful freak. do you know what I mean like <laughs> yes exactly my David like, Bowie moment when yeah. I saw him and thought like whoa, whoa yeah of course you know Siggy and all of that stuff like whoa you can have makeup on and you can do this stuff and you can be mm-hmm. that and so that's how Prince for me it's like whoa. <laughs> uh, and so what yeah so what is the thing you would make what is, what is the full me uh I would probably just do like a bunch of really beautiful vegetarian stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially now with late spring, early summer. So you can do some really you know, beautiful charred carrot steaks and you can do some, just have like really celebrate this moment. But do it weird, weird, like <laughs> retro as hell. Like, yeah. um, a jello th- salad? <laughs> you know, just the weirder the better. You have to have some purple Oh, yeah. Sweet potato somewhere in there. 
and um, purple carrots. Uh, and yeah, and all make it weird, and you know <laughs> because it's print, probably which I haven't used in a long time. But bring foam back. <laughs> oh my gosh, some, some starfish and coffee. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Oh, beautiful. Last question, and this is a hard one for chefs. I think yeah. a lot. You have five uninterrupted minutes for self care. What do you do? I listen to music. And I mean, like, really listen, like, and go through, go back analog, like, yeah. Try to find, like, what is that keyboard over there that you don't hear and just back end it, right? Because so much of food is undertones of that, right? Yeah. Like, only the chef knows it's there, but right. it's really there. Right. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, you know, love spending time with my, my family that is, you know, have nothing to do with food, but it ends up talking about it. Right. Um, also being lucky enough to have these worlds of either soccer or tennis that, uh, like I play tennis with this Rasta man, and um, he's just, he doesn't even know, has no clue what I do. We never talked, not ever, ever talked about it. We just hit balls. That's and, so and, nice. And he's not, in, he's not interested, never asked me. Um, he talks to me a lot about food and ital food and you know vital food and all of the stuff so that's moment of food but it's not really it's about hitting balls and listening to another beat it's like he he brings jackfruit to me or mm. like just because that's what we need to eat before we play and stuff like that oh. so those are, those are worlds that are you know and then the last one would be the world of art the arts mm-hmm. right so Is thinking there- through in I, I'm so monolithic in it, but I enter it in many ways, thinking through my dishes through art, right? Yeah. Through really uh, thinking, drawing it down and thinking it through that way. These sound like moments where you are being all of the people who you are mm-hmm. and also getting to step away from yeah. anything that you have to be for anybody else. Mm-hmm. No, but these also been places that I, I go to throughout the years for inspiration, but also for understanding what's coming next, right? The art world has always been something that I go to, to understand. Because um, a lot of authorship and documentation around black cooking is you have to dig so deep to find it sometimes. And art has been a way that documented it a little bit, you know, a little bit further, a little bit better. So been able to under- having conversations around structure with someone like Julian Hector or Derek Adams helps me think through um, architectural and design of food. Well, I hope you get a lot of these moments, a lot of these self-care moments uh, coming up because you are a busy man. And it's funny you say that. <laughs> I don't think about it like that. <laughs> I don't think about it from that perspective at all. Well, from the outside. <laughs> well, I think about like here is the opportunity to connect and yeah. these are the stories we have to tell we have to tell them in in these sticking moments right whether so the audible red rooster cookbook was just i don't care how many hours it took or takes because mm-hmm. we're still not done uh because it's it these voices are very important documentation and you think about so much about black excellence but also black um content the authorship of that had always been changed and here's a moment of not changing that 
the pitmaster has always been an anonymous person. Uh, of course, it hasn't been, but there was never the person that actually was the pitmaster. The recipe for for so many cocktails has always been somebody else, right? right? So the authorship has always been stolen. So here's a moment of correcting that. So I don't look at that as about being busy. I'm looking at that as documenting and taking back the authorship of um, a completely false narrative that has been told for such a long time. I love that. So you can't put time on that. I love that. I love that so much. And I love that. I want to tell people where they can find all of this from you so they can go to Red Rooster. They can get well, the Marcus Cooks. We do, yeah, and Marcus Cooks, we like kind of like on my Instagram, we kind of push out what's coming. But, uh, you know, on Audible, obviously, you can just go on Audible and mm-hmm. it's called Our Harlem. And it's it's really a labor of love. And I really thank Audible for believing and telling a new way of telling cookbook stories. And I think it can open a door up to tell more stories like that. And it's needed. Yay. So I want people to find you. They, Marcus is Marcus Cooks on all the different social platforms. Yeah. Okay. And then your website. Mm-hmm. And then they can go and take themselves to Red Rooster or to Ginny's mm-hmm. or, you know, find you at Eat Up Harlem yeah. or any of these these other kind of things. But I just I want to thank you for thank you for having for me both today and just for you in general and the conversations that you open and thank giving you putting the names where, where they should be back in, in place. Thank um, you so much really for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you to our producers, Jennifer Martinick and Alicia Cabral. Thanks to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. If there's something you'd like for us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thanks for listening. Take good care of yourself till next time and go visit Marcus in Harlem.